we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I want to start off tonight with something out of Playboy magazine. It's just an article, so do not worry. This is still a family program. In 1990, Donald Trump did a sit-down interview with Playboy in which he teased a future in American politics. And there is something he said back then that we all probably should have taken a bit more seriously. It was just a year after the Chinese government used a massive amount of military force to violently crack down on pro-democracy student protesters who had been occupying Tiananmen Square in Beijing. The Chinese government declared martial law and it massacred hundreds of civilians. And here was Donald Trump's take on that incident one year later in the pages of Playboy. When the students poured into Tiananmen Square, the Chinese government almost blew it. Then they were vicious. They were horrible, but they put it down with strength. That shows you the power of strength. Our country is right now perceived as weak. Okay, at this point, people can be forgiven for not believing a lot of things Donald Trump says. They don't think he actually means what comes out of his mouth. And yes, this interview was in Playboy which I know some people read expressly just for the articles. But still, it is hard to take Playboy that seriously. But now that Donald Trump has denied the outcome of one Democratic election and urged his supporters to commit insurrection on his behalf and somehow remains the front runner on his party's presidential ticket, given all of that, maybe it is time to start taking Trump's comments the ones praising authoritarian regimes and their leaders. Maybe it is time to take them seriously. The man who looks like a piece of granite, right? (laughs) He's strong like granite. He's strong. I know him very well. President Xi of China. He runs 1.4 billion people with an iron hand. President Xi, smart, top of his game. President Putin, smart, very smart people. One of the strongest leaders, Viktor Orban from Hungary. He's a very strong man, very strong, powerful man, one of the most respected leaders in the world. It's tough. No games, right? Hungary. Hungary is not playing games. Hungary, just for the record here, is one of the most anti-democratic countries in the world. But Hungary is the city on a hill for Donald Trump. It's a well-run country. That Hungary. Trump has not been shy about his love for strong men or for his strongman-like plans for our very own country if he wins in 2024. He wants to stop all investigations into his wrongdoings, and he wants to open investigations into Joe Biden and other political opponents using the Justice Department to go after his political enemies. And it now appears Trump is ready to clean house within the federal government itself getting rid of as many career employees as he can and installing an army of loyalists. McKay Coppins writes in The Atlantic, if conservative groups get their way, the next Republican president will sign an executive order eliminating civil service protections for up to 50,000 federal workers, effectively making the people in these roles political appointees. 
the people whose names are being floated for senior positions in a potential second Trump White House, they are not being shy about what they would do with that newfound power either. There's a couple people that you could put in positions like that. You know, we talk about like, you know, Mike Davis as attorney general. We're going to fire a lot of people in the executive branch, in the deep state. We're going to indict Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and James Biden and every other scumball, sleazeball Biden. Uh, Cash, I, I know you're probably going to be head of the CIA, but do you believe that you can deliver the goods on this in a pretty short in a pretty short order of the first couple of months so we can get rolling on prosecutions? Yes, we will go out and find the conspirators, not just in government, but in the media. Yes, we're going to come after the people in the media who lied about American citizens, who helped Joe Biden rig presidential elections. We're going to come after you. We're going to come after you. That's the sales pitch here. Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney this week is warning that America is sleepwalking into a dictatorship in the United States. In the past few days, the Washington Post, the New York Times and The Atlantic have all published stories referencing the potential for a Trump dictatorship. Republicans in the Senate, however, clearly don't subscribe to any of those publications or they don't read them. Republican Senator J.D. Vance tweeted, all of these articles calling Trump a dictator are about one thing, legitimizing illegal and violent conduct as we get closer to the election. Everyone needs to take a chill pill. Republicans in the House have turned the alarm on its head. Congressman Wesley Hunt claimed the left has gone full panic mode and said that another Trump term would mean the end of dictators in America, not the beginning. As for House Republican leadership today, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson announced that he plans to vote to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden as soon as next week. He also clarified that before he can release 44,000 hours of January 6th footage to the public, the speaker's team needs to do just one thing. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and, uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ. Got to give the insurrectionists cover from the DOJ. So said the Speaker of the House. If you are waiting for Republicans in Congress to stop the slide towards autocracy, do not hold your breath. Now, the most exhaustive accounting of the exact nature of this potential autocracy is in this week's Atlantic. Over 24 essays, Atlantic authors carefully examine what is hyperbole, what is a bad joke, and what should really have us worried. Together, these pieces make what Atlantic editor-in-chief Jeffrey Goldberg calls a convincingly dispositive case that both Trump and Trumpism pose an existential threat to America and to the ideas that animate it. The country, he writes, survived the first Trump term, though not without sustaining serious damage. A second term, if there is one, will be much worse. Joining me now are The Atlantic Magazine's and The Atlantic's editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, and staff writer at The Atlantic, McKay Coppins. He is also, of course, the author of the recently released Romney, A Reckoning. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Um, Jeff, I'd love to know um, what about this moment uh, brought on this spate and in particular this publication from the Atlantic of these, these stories detailing what, what the Trump dictatorship might look like. I'll quote um, something from Robert Kagan in the Post who says, 
Barring some miracle, Trump will soon be the nominee. When that happens, there will be a swift and dramatic shift in the political power dynamic in his favor. Until now, Republicans and conservatives have enjoyed relative freedom to express anti-Trump sentiments, to speak openly and positively about alternative candidates. All this will end once Trump wins Super Tuesday. Is there a feeling that the window is closing to alarm the American people? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, that's an interesting question because, by the way, hi, Alex. Nice to see you. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting question because— a lot of us think that we've had seven or eight years of knowledge of what Trump is capable of of doing. But, yeah, you, you know, it's he does not have the nomination yet. And and as you know, our interest at The Atlantic generally is not in uh, endorsing or 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 picking favorites in a, in a partisan way. Um, we believe that a strong liberal party and a strong conservative party are prerequisites uh, for a healthy American democracy. But what you don't what you have now is not a healthy conservative party. You have a a cult of personality in the Republican Party built around this person. And from a technical standpoint, it's not too late for the Republican Party to pick someone else. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, so on. Um, and so I just thought we're not too late to remind people and to pull together in one place. Right. That's the idea to pull it all together. This is what we have a lot of great experts on the Atlantic staff on different areas from immigration to national security to the Supreme Court and so on. It was it's not too late to pull them all together and um, and, and have them outline exactly what they think will happen. And they do that based on looking at the four years of the first Trump term. Right. And and I think you're you're alluding to this in, in, in your program, they're just listening to what he's saying now and what his supporters are saying now. I just wanted to I just wanted it all in one place. And at the very least, what I told our staff is, you know, we may not convince people um, that that Trumpism is a very bad idea, but at least we'll have tried to, to stop what I see as a disaster in the making. Yeah, at least we'll have tried seems to be kind of um, the distress call <laughs> amongst those who know and who care. Uh, McKay, I want to ask you from the in the context, not just of Trump, but the, the Republican Party writ large. I mean, the last few weeks have felt like Trump's minions charged the hill and they may have taken it. And by the hill, I mean, Capitol Hill, right? We have the retirement of Mitt Romney, um, which you have beautifully chronicled in your book. You have Liz Cheney, who's no longer in Congress, who is out with her book this week, saying many of the same things that are, that are echoed in the pages of The Atlantic. There was the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, who by no means was a normal Republican, but was slightly tethered to reality. And I emphasis on the word slightly. Um, the elevation of Mike Johnson, very much a Trump lackey. Patrick McHenry, a kind of sort of normie Republican by no means a moderate, but he announced his um, he announced his retirement today as well. I, I, I wonder how what you what you make of the sort of party that that stands around Trump and specifically the members of Congress who in some ways are supposed to be a check on uh, Trump's power, whether he has fully overtaken the party on the Hill. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that one of the most significant victories Trump has had in the years since he left the White House was holding on to and consolidating his support 
in Congress among Republicans, right? The last several years, and you, you can go back to his presidency, but really the last few years have seen an exodus of the handful of dissidents within the Republican Party who were willing to routinely call out Trump for his excesses, his outrages, the, his, his anti-democratic behavior. And and what's happened is that the culture of fear of speaking out against Trump has has really kind of uh, calcified. You know, you, it is very hard these days to find a Republican uh, who is willing on the Hill to say anything critical of Donald Trump. And, that, and you know, we're in the middle. It's, it's important to remember, you just talked about it. We're in the middle of a Republican presidential primary. Typically, uh, at, during a moment like this, you would find a lot of different Republicans who had their own favorite candidates that, you know, they would be engaged in surrogacy and, you know, a, a robust debate uh, on uh, uh, over who should be the nominee. Instead, what you see is a culture of silence and fear and uh, Republicans who have basically consigned themselves to the reality that Trump will be their nominee, um, even as, you know, not a single vote has been cast. Yeah. And I think furthermore, Jeff, there's the question of whether they even whisper about what they'd like to do, whether there's even a sense that there's like a chasm between what is good for democracy and what they're doing. Because the revisionism, for example, around something like January 6th, is so profound. I was really struck by the fact that the Speaker of the House is openly saying, we got to blur the faces of the insurrectionists so DOJ doesn't, doesn't charge them. I mean, that, that, that's the right. legislative branch in open, I won't say warfare, openly hostile to the work of, of the department. It's astonishing. It's, it's astonishing. astonishing. And, and today, I think uh, Jim Jordan announced the investigation into Fonnie Willis colluding with the January 6th committee. That's going to be an investigation led by the oversight chair. I mean, they've revised the nature of that insurrection to the degree that it appears they almost believe what they're saying. They are getting high on their own supply, Jeff. <laughs> right. And, and you know, what, what, what's interesting here to me, uh, people talk about, well, you know, the country survived the first Trump term. This is not going to be the—if he wins, it's not like the first Trump term. And McKay has a very good piece on, on this in The Atlantic. Uh, you know, no more grown-ups. As, as we referred to them, the Jim Mattises, Rex Tillerson, Bill Bars, John Kellys, all of these people who came in, uh, you know, mainstream conservative Republicans, but people who believed in the rule of law um, were there and, and they checked Trump's worst impulses. Now it's going to be it's going to be true believers all the way down. Right. Loyalists all the way down. And so they are going to David Frum in our in our issue refers to the a possibility of a of a second Trump term as the revenge presidency. It's all about punishing enemies. And 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 remember that these are people who believe that the insurrectionists are right. And the people who are criticizing them, the, the Liz Cheney's, the Adam Kinzinger's, the Mitt Romney's, they're the traitors. You know, so we're in the upside down. Right. And and if we get there and if Trump becomes president again, it's it's I, I hate to I hate to sound mellow. I hate to sound dramatic. Right. I, it just I, I don't I don't like to do the, the, the drama <laughs> thing, but it's 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 not going to be the country we 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 know anymore. It's it's going to be um, it's going to be Hungary in a lot of ways. I, 
<clears throat> to that, to what, not the Hungary piece, but the, the, the piece that you wrote, McKay, in the, in the magazine, you mentioned some of the loyalists that uh, Jeff alludes to, Stephen Miller, Rick Grinnell, Cash Patel, Mike Davis, Jeffrey Clark, Vivek Ramaswamy, maybe even Ted Cruz, having cabinet-level positions. But you also bring up the point that that requires Senate confirmation. How worried do you think the country really needs to be about Cash Patel running the CIA? I mean, how feasible is that? So it's a good question, and I asked a number of people in Trump's orbit about this. You know, some of the names that are being floated for these positions seem pretty unpalatable to, uh, to you know, a Senate confirmation process. And what they told me was, look— you know, may, maybe that's true. If we can't get Stephen Miller, for example, confirmed as head of uh, Department of Homeland Security, we can just install him as White House chief of staff and he can take over a lot of the same roles that he would have in that role. I, I think they're already gaming out ways to get around uh, the challenge of confirmation to ensure that the people who are most loyal to Trump, most obedient to Trump, are the ones who will have the power. And I think you're going to see a pretty broad restructuring structuring of government in a second term. You mentioned this at the top, Alex, but <clears throat> this isn't just about the cabinet-level positions. This is about, um, you know, the, the rank-and-file government bureaucrats, because there is an effort underway to ensure that up to 50,000 federal workers uh, will be reclassified, essentially, as political appointees that the president can fire at will. And what that means is that, for example, at the Justice Department, you know, maybe you have Jeffrey Clark or Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley as attorney general, but you also have the rank-and-file lawyers who are in charge of filing subpoenas, putting together lawsuits. Um, all of them will be replaced or could be replaced with hyper-loyalists. And in fact, Paul Dans at the Heritage Foundation, who worked as the uh, the uh, Trump Office of Personnel had uh, during the first term ha told me that they're already putting together long lists of people who have been vetted by them, who would make great, uh, great members of the administration at, at that level. And one thing he told me that I think is really chilling, and I, I quote this in the piece, he said, the whole notion of the an independent justice, justice department needs to be consigned to the ash heap of history. Uh -huh. uh, he, he basically is saying the Justice Department will be used by the president to pursue his vendettas and, and revenge against his political opponents and enemies. And, and you know, it, that's as it should be. And I think that speaks to the ethos of a second Trump term. Well, McKay Coppins, Jeffrey Goldberg, it's all in one place. Thanks to you and McKay and many other talented writers at The Atlantic. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Again, the latest issue on Newsstands now is entitled If Trump Wins. We have much more ahead this evening as potential jurors in Trump's first federal criminal case to go to trial as they get something special in their mailboxes. Plus, with all the alarm bells ringing about a second Trump presidency, my next guest says it's not too late to fight and win and not just at the ballot box. That's next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Here's the headline. A Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. That's an opinion piece by Washington Post editor-at-large Robert Kagan. He continues, will those who balked at resisting Trump when the risk was merely political oblivion suddenly discover their courage when the cost might be the ruin of oneself and one's family? We are closer to that point today than we have ever been, yet we continue to drift toward dictatorship, still hoping for some intervention that will allow us to escape the consequences of our collective cowardice, our complacent, willful ignorance, and above all, our lack of any deep commitment to liberal democracy. Kagan's editorial is part of a series of alarms that are nearing a crescendo ahead of the 2024 election. Judge Michael Ludig, one of the most prominent conservative voices that has arisen in opposition to Donald Trump, is arguing that it's not too late. He is leading the American Bar Association's Task Force for American Democracy, alongside Jay Johnson, President Obama's Security of Home- Secretary of Homeland Security. And the goal here is to outline meaningful steps that can be taken to preserve and protect our democratic institutions. Joining me now is Jay Johnson, former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama, now co-chair of the ABA's Task Force for American Democracy. Uh, Secretary Johnson, thank you for joining me for what I hope could be somewhat positive, optimistic, or at least uplifting conversation. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thank you for coming on the set. First, tell me about the fact that the American Bar Association is putting is is getting involved in an, in an effort to preserve democracy. What legally speaking can and should be done ahead of the next election? First of all, it's not just the ABA. It's state bar associations who have thrown in with us. And the task force that we have assembled are not just lawyers. They're historians. They're people ranging from Mark Moriel, the head of the Urban League, to Bill Kristol, the conservative commentator, all concerned about the future of our democracy. Uh, Our task force is underway. We're due to deliver a report in August of 2024, just before the election, uh, that will make recommendations both long-term and short-term. But in the meantime, what we've been doing is trying to reiterate around the country the importance of a democracy. We're concerned that Americans, many Americans, have lost sight of the value of a democratic nation as opposed to an autocracy. We're we're losing sight of the virtues of having a voice in selecting your leaders. 
beyond sort of the obvious, it would be better to live in a democracy than an autocracy. I mean, how do you make Americans reprioritize something that it seems we've taken for granted as a nation? Well, we have taken it for granted. And, you know, when I see things like the editorial you read, I'm reminded of what Martin Luther King used to always say. Our generation will have to repent, not just for the bad people, but for the good people who knew better, Mm. who stood by in silence and enabled it and let it happen. And there are far too many in Congress. There are far too many in political life who are allowing, frankly, Donald Trump to get the nomination and come perilously close to a second term as president. And as you know, those on this show previous to me keep saying, this time around, the guardrails will be off. There'll be no John Kelly, who succeeded me as DHS secretary. There'll be no Jim Mattis, who was secretary of defense. There'll be no Dan Coats, because they won't want to serve, and Trump won't want them to serve. Uh, Stephen Miller will assemble a team that, first of all, can't get Senate confirmation, but will be appointed in acting roles. So they don't have to have confirmation. He's reportedly vetting people already to be general counsel of the Department of Defense. My old job before I was DHS secretary and general counsel of DHS. Those are two positions, legal positions that matter to trying to effectuate the type of government that Donald Trump seems to want. I got to ask you, as you bring up your position um, serving under President Obama, How secure do you believe the next election will be, both in terms of domestic interference or uprising and also international interference? Because if I'm Russia and I'm looking, I mean, they're busy, granted, with the war in Ukraine. But if I look at how fractured the American public is, the way in which social media is entertaining, if not platforming lies, including and especially X, I feel like it's a moment that's ripe for anyone who wants to mess around with American democracy. Two answers. One, I have a lot of confidence in our election infrastructure, uh, polling places, reporting of election results. There are those who uh, have challenged it, but I have a lot of confidence. And you look at the 2020 election in the midst of COVID, we had this huge, huge turnout. The great unknown is, as you point out, social media um, and the extent to which foreign or domestic actors may infiltrate social media with fake news, alarmist attitudes, extremist views. That's the great unknown in our democracy. Uh, Free speech, our free society is both our greatest virtue and our greatest weakness. And so it's going to be incumbent upon people like yourself and others uh, to continually be truth tellers to the American public. Those of us who have a voice, those of us who command a microphone have to continually, and I learned in Washington, you have to repeat things 18 times before (laughs) anybody will listen to you. We have to continually point out the falsehoods, point out the fake news. So many Americans now are prone to believing fiction, bad fiction, evil fiction, because they read it on social media and they don't scrutinize, they don't fact check, they just accept it. Wholesale. That's a dangerous place to be right now. It take, you have to do the work. Um, I, I, I got to ask you before we go, the courts. Um, yes. I know you are, you're, you're a man with a legal background. Um, yes. And 
How confident are you in that part of the system holding? It is, was critical in 2020, and yet you look at what's happening right now with Judge Cannon down in Mar- dealing with the Mar-a-Lago documents case, Judge Chutkin dealing with the federal election interference case, a study in contrasts, two potentially very different outcomes for the same defendant. Mm-hmm. Um, are you confident that the court system, that the center there will hold? I'll answer it this way. I believe that our judiciary could be the last best hope in terms of a branch of government that saves our democracy. Um, The courts thus far at the district court level, the appellate level, and even at the level of the Supreme Court, I believe, have stood up for our democracy, our democratic norms, our constitution. And at the end of the day, they may be the ones that step in and, and save us. Traditionally, the courts have deferred to the executive branch of government. They've deferred on immigration enforcement and policy. They've deferred on issues of national security and how we spend our money. But in my observation, as the judiciary sees the executive branch overreaching and the legislative branch sitting back polarized, they've become more involved in areas where they traditionally have not been involved because it's a political question or because it's national security, we defer to the military. The judiciary is getting more and more involved. So all of these, a lot of these controversial policies that we hear are being contemplated in a possible Trump administration, I'm sure there's going to be litigation over each and every one of them. And very often the result depends upon the venue. Yep. Where you go and which judge is selected to hear the case. And a skilled team of lawyers, says says a man who's part of the ABA's task force. Secretary Jay Johnson, thank you for your time. Thank you for your words of mostly uplift and and reminding us that the work needs to be done and we are all part of the project. We have much more ahead this evening. If you are in Washington, D.C. tonight, check your mailbox. You probably didn't win Publisher Sweepstakes Clearinghouse, but you might have just gotten the very first sign. The jury selection for Donald Trump's federal election interference trial has just begun. That is next. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance. While kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. This week, some lucky, probably, some lucky residents of Washington, D.C. received a cryptic letter in their mailboxes. Dear prospective juror, this pre-screening form is being sent to you to determine your availability to serve as a juror for a trial. The trial begins on Friday, March 4th, 2024, and the trial may last approximately three months after jury selection is completed. 
Now, we don't know which federal trial those letters are referring to, but March 4th is the scheduled start date for Donald Trump's federal criminal trial for 2020 election interference. Putting on what is very loose-fitting Sherlock Holmes hat here, the three-month time frame mentioned in that letter suggests it will be an important trial. The letter also tells prospective jurors to be available to fill out a juror questionnaire on February 9th of next year, which is the exact date Judge Tanya Chutkin has set for jury questionnaires in Trump's case. So while we can't say it for sure, it definitely looks like the jury selection process for maybe the most important trial in our lifetimes has officially begun. And boy, selecting a jury for this case is going to be a monumental task. The jury questionnaire will likely try to assess whether jurors have any sort of bias concerning one of the most polarizing public figures of our time, which means a lot of skillful, intense vetting will be going on here. The same cannot be said for another Trump-related questionnaire, different, but also having to do with potentially overturning the will of the American people. The New York Times has been reporting on a questionnaire crafted by Trump's allies to determine who would be a suitable candidate to serve in the second Trump administration. And that document confirms some of the most hair-raising reporting about who Trump wants to surround himself with should he take power again. It asks potential candidates for key government positions whether the U.S. has the right to select immigrants based on country of origin, or whether life has a right to legal protection from conception to natural death. But perhaps the most telling prompt is this one. The president should be able to advance his or her agenda through the bureaucracy without hindrance from unelected federal officials. Agree or disagree? It's essentially a job application to find unelected federal officials who are willing to let Trump do whatever he wants. So as the D.C. court begins surveying potential Trump jurors, Trump's allies are surveying a new class of Trump sycophants. And what we have here is a tale of two questionnaires, one for people who are seeking to deliver justice and another for the people seeking to subvert it. The question is, can those seeking justice manage to make questions about a second Trump presidency obsolete? We have new developments on all that coming up next with Neil Katyal. There is a tradition in this country, in fact, one of the prides of this country, is the peaceful transition of power and that no matter how hard fought a campaign is, that at the end of the campaign, that the loser concedes to the winner. Are you saying you're not prepared now to commit to that principle? What I'm saying is that I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. So Donald Trump's unwillingness to commit to the peaceful transfer of power was clear even before he became president. That little soft shoe there is from a presidential debate in 2016. And that moment was highlighted in a new D.C. court filing by special counsel Jack Smith. From that document, it appears that Smith is building his case by pointing to Trump's extended history of casting doubt on election outcomes, even elections he wasn't running in. By way of an example, the special counsel points to this tweet from election night in 2012, where Trump falsely claimed that voting machines had switched votes from Mitt Romney 
to Barack Obama. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, former U.S. Acting Solicitor General. Neil, thank you for being here. And I, I'm eager to hear your perspective on how meaningful it is here that Jack Smith is asking to bring in moments from 2012 and 2016, which far predate the 2020 election. Yeah, I do think, Alex, that it is meaningful. I mean, this filing details basically the evidence of of criminal defendant Donald Trump's bad acts and his conduct that Jack Smith, the prosecutor, wants to present to a jury. And frankly, given Donald Trump's history, I'm surprised it was only nine pages long, this filing. I'm sure they could have filled a war and peace sized book if they wanted to. Um, But I think what Smith is doing here, he's intentionally tipping his hand, Alex. He's saying, here's the kind of evidence I have against Donald Trump. Prosecutors, of course, turn over all their evidence, uh, exculpatory and inculpatory, uh, as part of the Supreme Court's decision under Brady versus Maryland. you got to turn over everything. But here Jack Smith is saying, my narrative is going to include evidence of these bad acts that Trump engaged in before. You know, the the indictment itself was pretty narrow, but it feels like, for example, in this ruling that Smith is decidedly more aggressive, if that's the right term to use, in terms of the evidence he wants to bring in and in in, in a way that the sort of argument he, it looks like he's going to be making in court. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Um, yes and no. I mean, you're right that the indictment is narrower and then a filing like this about what's called 404B evidence is going to be broader. But that's true, Alex, in every criminal case, because the indictment just is a kind of short, plain statement of what the crimes are. And what he's doing now is saying, OK, here's how I'm going to prove it up. And the law has all sorts of restrictions when you use evidence about bad acts. Most importantly, you can't use evidence if you're a prosecutor of someone's bad acts to prove in the past to prove they committed another bad act now. So Jack Smith is not saying, oh, Trump in 2012 or in 2016 in that clip, you basically signaled that you wanted to contest an election no matter how fair that election was. He's not saying, oh, that means that you committed a bad act in 2020. Rather, what he's saying is, I'm going to use that evidence to show motive, to show basically you had this plot all along and that it's evidence that goes to your state of mind, but not to the bad act itself. Um, Neil, in, in further further in the in the filing today, there is news of an unindicted co-conspirator. The filing mentions an orchestrated riot at the TCF Center in Detroit, where votes were being counted after the election in November of 2020, and an unindicted co-conspirator who apparently worked for the Trump campaign, who tried to coordinate that riot with a Trump campaign lawyer as the vote started trending, as the vote count started trending towards Joe Biden. This seems like an explosive revelation here. And I wonder if you have thoughts on its inclusion in this in this filing and also who that unindicted co-conspirator might be. I don't, Alex. I don't want to speculate because I just feel like I'd be way too far out on my skis. I have some thoughts, but, you know, I think we should let that wait. There's another one that I do think we can talk about, which is in this filing today, Jack Smith said he wants to introduce evidence of Donald Trump after January 6th, standing up and defending the Proud Boys and others who were convicted of the January 6th attack. And what Smith is basically asking is, look, if you didn't Donald Trump intend 
end this invasion on the Capitol? Why in the world are you defending them, calling them freedom fighters and all of that? And as a lawyer, if Donald Trump were my client, which of course he never would be, but if he were, I'd advise my client to keep your trap shut because of fear of generating precisely this kind of evidence. And lo and behold, that's what Donald Trump has done, generate more evidence against himself. Our founders said you have a privilege against self-incrimination, but Donald Trump is masterfully uh, you know, using it to incriminate himself even further. And that's what the filing today says. Continuing to play their soundtrack and calling them hostages. Uh, Neil Katyal, it is always great to have you to help make sense of all of this. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. We have one more story this evening. President Biden made a sort of surprising revelation today. He's only running for re-election because of one thing. That thing is coming up next. President Biden was busy campaigning in Boston today, where the print journalists in the room took note of this comment from him. If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we can't let him win. Now, that is a pretty big statement for a sitting president in his first term, and especially a sitting president with approval numbers that have some Democrats openly questioning whether Biden actually even is the person to beat Donald Trump in 2024. Complicating that picture, maybe greatly or maybe not so greatly, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Jill Stein, and potentially West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And now, as of this week, former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney we're at this really unprecedented moment where, um, you know, our system for so long has meant that we've got a Republican candidate and a Democratic candidate and, and contemplating any kind of a third party run was something that, you know, most of us would never do. Mm-hmm. I think this is a different moment, but but I'm not going to take any steps, certainly, uh, that that will help him. Joining us now is Jamie Harrison, chairman of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. Mr. Chairman, it's great to see you here in it New York City. It is great to be here. Um, let me just first get your reaction to President Biden saying, if Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we can't let him win. Is that, I mean, is that raising the stakes or is that, does the president need to make a better case for why he should be reelected? Oh, you remember just a few years ago in 2020, the president got in the race because he said that he wanted to to battle for the soul of this nation. Yeah. He wanted to protect the soul of this nation. And it was because of the threat of Donald Trump. We saw what four years of Donald Trump meant. We saw how devastated uh, this country was because of Trump. And we see that Donald Trump still has not learned a lesson from that time. He still wants to go after the rights of women to protect their own bodies and to, to make decisions about their own bodies. He still wants to go after voting rights in this country. He wants to gut the freedoms. He does not believe in democracy. He believes in revenge. Um, and so the president understands that we cannot allow, you know, odds are Donald Trump's going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. We cannot allow Donald Trump to destroy America. Uh, and President Biden's going to stand in that gap like he did before. And so, you know, we don't care about the polls and all of the like. It's about making sure that we have the right leader who is fighting for uh, the decency and, and the freedoms of all Americans. I I wonder, given the stakes that you so articulately outline here and that we've talked about at length on tonight's show, what you make of the potential candidacies of uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, 
RFK Jr., who is polling, I know you're not worried about the polls, but is garnering some legitimate support nationally. And of course, Jill Stein also has her hat in the ring. I mean, does that matter here as you think about the race next year? Well, you listen, all of that is a factor and, and you, you run your race based on who's in the race. Um, but we know in 2020, Joe Biden got 80 million votes. No person on this planet, no person in the history of this nation has ever gotten that many votes. And it really doesn't matter who's on the ballot. My grandma used to tell me, Jamie, control what you can control. Mm -hmm. We can control what we can do at the DNC, what we can do in order to support this president. That is making sure that we get a message out to make sure that we educate folks, that we register folks, that we mobilize them, we we reach out to them and that we protect them once they get to the polls. And we have shown even when the polls said uh, in 20, 2022, the polls said that we we're going to have this huge red wave. Yeah. We saw red, tw- red tears. So we are focused on doing what we have to do. Uh, and we've had a good track record of showing that even when the polls uh, say one thing, the only poll that matters is what happens on Election Day. Red tears like blood. No, I'm kidding. No. I know where you're going with that. The um A lot of people credit the issue of abortion and the fight over basic reproductive freedoms as giving the Democrats the stronger showing on um, the in the midterms. Is is President Biden the right interlocutor uh, to talk to sort of make the case for what Democrats would do in terms of women's bodily freedoms? Well, well, again, we had the midterms. We just had a, a series of elections in November in which reproductive freedom was on the ballot yeah. in Kentucky. It was on the ballot it's clearly important in, in Ohio and in, in yeah. Virginia. And we know where the Republicans are from Nikki Haley to Ron DeSantis to Donald Trump himself. They are all believe that there should be a national abortion ban. They all have a track record of fighting against reproductive freedom for women. And we know where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are. They have been protecting as much as they can with the executive authority that they have protecting those rights for women. And they're going to continue to do so. Um, one more for you. Reed Hoffman, who is a, a sort of top Democratic donor, is giving good friend, good friend yep. not in air quotes, gave $250,000 today or this week to Super PAC supporting Nikki Haley. Should Democratic donors be supporting Nikki Haley's candidacy in the hope that the worst case scenario here is a Biden-Haley matchup? You know, the MAGA uh, apples on the uh, on the other side, there's a bag of MAGA apples and they're all rotten, including Nikki Haley. I know Nikki Haley probably better than most because I was the party chair in South Carolina when she was governor. This is a person who allowed their uh, own home hospital to close. This is a person who wants to gut uh, Social Security and Medicare. This is a person who does not believe uh, in a woman's right to choose. She may try to moderate what she's saying now, but look at her track record. So uh, my advice to any Democrat or anybody else, don't think that Nikki Haley is a the good side of the Republican Party. She's just as rotten as Donald Trump is. The Apple analogy works extensively in this in this conversation. Jamie Harrison, chair of the DNC. Great to have you here on the Thank set. For Thanks for joining me. me tonight. Thank you. That is our show for tonight. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.